James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The fourth chapter of James, verses 1 through 10. The sermon tonight is dedicated to, to those of you who would rather fight than switch or surrender, who find it difficult to, to say, I give up, I capitulate, I abdicate, I'm willing to yield. I place myself in surrender to you. Uh, do I, you know, I'm talking to those tonight. It's amazing what you remember from your childhood, little flashes from childhood that you, you never forget. I remember the first fight I ever saw. I must have been in second grade or third. There was two boys out on the school grounds. I mean the big boys. They must have been seventh graders at least. Giants, and they were fighting. Well, one was fighting; the other was the other had him pinned down on the ground. He just was laying on top of him on the ground, had him around the neck, choking him. Everybody's kind of ganged around, and his eyes were bugged out about three inches, and his tongue, you know, protruding. He was choking him to death, literally. And he was saying to him, "I'll let you up if you'll say I give up." He couldn't talk in the first place, but he, you know. He, I guess he would have choked the life out of him. I had no doubt about that if the teacher hadn't gotten there in about five minutes. Of course, none of us were going to jump in there and break that baby up, those big boys. And, again, and the guy was just, just going to you know, stay there and take it because he wasn't about to say, I, I give up. Man by nature is a fighter. He'd rather fight than give in. And so he... He wages these little wars out on the highways, you know, and in the business world, and in the family, in the home. I have a feeling that many of our marriages, many of the marriages that exist today, are just little tips of the iceberg in the icy seas of conflict and hostility that occurs behind the four walls of the modern home, and even in the church. Franklin Roosevelt said, There's nothing I love as much as a good fight. I, I think he reminds me of some folks I know. Our text deals with the problems of fighting. When we shouldn't. Now there are times when we should. I have a fear tonight that we are arriving at a place in this country where we will, not, we will no longer fight for what is right. Um, Rolling Stone magazine recently came out with a poll, and in this poll, 40% of those were polled said, there is absolutely no circumstance, absolutely no circumstance, which I would fight for my country. Some of you remember the sign that was flashed across the television screen and in the newspapers when Jimmy Carter um, began the draft again a few years ago. This young hippie in Princeton with this big sign was flashed across into every, into every home on television. There's nothing worth dying for. I read an interesting article uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Royka wrote in the editorial page of the Dallas Morning News in which he said, we are fighting a, a, a hopeless war against drugs. I mean, it's a winless war, he said. And what we need to do is go ahead and surrender. And if a person wants to snort cocaine up his nose and blow his mind away, let him do it. 
because we are engaged in a war that's not worth the fight. There are times when we need to fight. There are times when we shouldn't. As a matter of fact, one historian said, you can trace man's history by his wars and conflicts better than by his achievements. Some initial facts about this text. In verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 1, who's doing the fighting? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, underlined among you? That gives us a a clue as to who's doing the fighting. These are believers in the midst of the fellowship, believe it or not. These are Christian people. These folks that he's talking about here who are engaged in conflict are Christian people. I found it interesting that in the conversations I had with these men who were here this week, one common denominator that, was, that existed among each of us were these stories about church conflicts. It was just common conversation. The church is too much characterized by caustic criticism, by harsh words, by jealousy and bitterness and strife, It seems like those of us who profess to know the same Lord and love the same Christ could be expected to dwell in unity. And yet some of the conflict that exists in this world does not take place out in in the arena of the unbeliever, but right in the fellowship of the church, much to my sorrow. And what are the battles? He calls them quarrels and conflicts. From the broad to the narrow, the word quarrels refers to warfare on a broad scale. That all-encompassing struggle that exists where men live side by side. But the word conflict narrows it down to those little petty individual personal battles. And because that that is the last, that's the latter, he emphasizes it. He's saying in essence that the worst kind of battles that go on among people are little old bitty personal petty battles that don't matter to a hill of beans. That's true. Some of the worst fights that ever go on in a church over some, or over something that makes absolutely no sense at all. No, I mean no real issues. You know, like what color carpet? Well, I was... Uh, taking church history in Southwestern, they asked us one day as a project to go back and research some of the old minutes, you know, of old churches, kind of like we've got laying around here. And, and I was reading one where this church in East Texas got in a fight over the fact they were going to put carpet down. And the interesting thing about it was that one of the old patriarch in the church, we'll call him Brother Smith, sat over against the window of this little country church and spat tobacco out the window, some dripped on the floor. That was holy ground there where he spat that tobacco. And they weren't about to cover that spit, (laughs) that tobacco juice, that tobacco stain with new carpet. I mean, Brother So-and-so sat here and that's that's a reminder of him. So when they carpeted the church after this six-month bitter battle, they just kind of cut a little groove out around that place where... Now, that's a true story, believe it or not. And some fights that go on in, in, in homes, in, the, in marriages, over, are fights over which we don't even re- know what we're fighting about. You ever notice that? 
I mean, we get in these knockdown and drag outs, and all of a sudden we stop to try to figure out what we're fighting about. We don't even know. Quarrels and conflicts. Now, an analysis of the problem is found in verse 1b through 4. Let me read. Is not the source of your pleasures, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members you lust and do not have? So you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're a, you adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there are two sources of the conflict. One he calls an inner desire, an inner lust. And the, and the word there in the Greek, pleasure, is a, word, is a term that describes a good pleasure, a God-given desire, a God-given pleasure. It might be your desire to succeed, and it's God-given. So that these desires, these pleasures, these impulses, these wants that a person has, God-given, he said, it is that from these desires, these pleasures, come these wars and strifes among you. What he's saying is this, that you have this God-given, perfect, right motivation and desire, and when it becomes frustrated, it produces this conflict among you. So that it's, it's what the psychologists call frustration-aggression hypothesis. It's this desire that's frustrated that creates this tension. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Here's this kid grows up in this home in West Texas, probably Monday or something like that. And he's told that if he doesn't get an education, he'll never amount to anything. You've got to have a college education, he's told, to ever really amount to something. And so what he has is this, this, this information, this guiding fiction that says, if you don't get a college education, you'll never amount to anything. So in order to amount to something, he's got to get the college education. And that becomes a burning desire for him. Not a college education. That's symptomatic. That's peripheral. What it becomes a burning desire for him is to amount to something. And he has this information that he's got to have a college education to ever amount to anything. Sound like anybody you know? And so he starts to college, and he's going to amount to something, and he's feeling really good. He's in college, and he's doing well. And about the second year of college, he meets this little gal and falls in love. Doesn't really mean to fall in love, because he's got two more years left in college, but they do fall in love, and they just can't stand to be separated, so they decide to get, decide to get married. And that kind of puts a little bit of break kind of puts the brakes just a little bit on his college education because he's got to reduce his workload now to take on another part-time job. About a year and a half after their marriage, perhaps a baby comes along. You know. And all of a sudden he has to drop out of school. And all of this time he's telling himself this guiding fiction is going on inside of him. If you don't get a college education, you're not going to amount to anything. And now he can't get a college education because he's got a wife and children. Now where is his aggression going to be directed? It's going to be directed toward his wife and his child. It's called the frustration-aggression hypothesis. 
One of the most interesting things about my travels in the Northwest was this, that every church that I ever visited was in conflict. And the pastor, the pastors would tell me this, that the, most of their church members were, were people that were, you know, that were that worked for somebody else and they'd go to work in the middle in the week and they'd get beat on, you know, by management. And so when they'd come into church on Sunday or Wednesday night, they just took out this aggression that had been built up on one another. These desires, he said, this, this pleasure, this desire in you frustrated turns you one against the other. That's the first source. And the second is what the scholars call the cosmic motivation. He says it in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He's talking about this adoption of a motivation of the world system, a kind of a natural inclination, a conformity to the standard of living which is not of God. Now, how does the world tell us to get along? The world tells us to get along by the battle of the, the survival of the fittest. I mean, take no prisoners. If you want to get to the top, you're going to have to climb over the backs of somebody else to get there. And so what he's saying is this, that the cause of this conflict among you is that you have adopted the, st the system that the world has of succeeding, of getting somewhere. Totally different than the, than the standard and the, uh, the coping system of Jesus Christ who turned the other cheek who walked the second mile, who gave and who loved and who sacrificed. And the world system says, if good guys finish last. And if you're going to ever survive in this dog-eat-dog -dog world, you're going to have to put on the gloves and go to war. And so James says that the cause of the conflict among you is that when you get together in the church, you treat each other, you, you go about your business together the way the world transacts their business. If I don't like you, I'll just squash you, you see. Now, what are the effects? Verses 2 through 3. The effects of this problem are, 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 are manifold and they just fit in a little pattern. I want you to watch this. The first effect is found in verse 2. It's murderous envy. Murderous envy. It's this envy that, that causes me to resent you because you have and I have not. You have something and I, want, I don't have it and I resent that. Whether you deserve it or not is not the issue. I resent you because you have and I have not. It's what caused Saul to burn with rage against David. And when the women started singing, Saul has slain his thousand, but David has slain his ten thousand, he burned with murderous envy. And he hurled his spear against to, to kill David, and when he missed, he picked it up and hurled it again. Now, there are several ways in which you and I can commit murder. We can do it with our lips, our tongue, and we can do it with our thoughts, so that we sit and we think about this person and we wish he were dead. And Jesus said, if you have that kind of hatred that causes you to say, Raka, in your heart, you've already committed the sin. 
And the second effect of this problem, he says, is that you ask not. Have you ever noticed this? That when you get in conflict with somebody, first thing it affects is your prayer life. There's some people I'm listen- that are listening to me tonight can't pray because they have in their heart malice toward a brother. And there's some of who hear my voice tonight have problems in their prayer life. Your prayer life is going down the tube because of these feelings you have toward someone else. And then he says it leads to self-centered praying. When you pray, it's always, I want this, give me this, so that I can consume it upon my own desires. Someone has said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, it's to get God's will done on earth. But when you have conflict and when these desires have become the issue of your life, it's hard to pray for somebody else to succeed. And then the next step in the progression is that you become friends with the world. I remember when I was a young lad, I had this best friend. Um, there was a guy that in my uh, school, he and I didn't get along that well. And in fact, um, we didn't get along at all, <laughs> just to be honest with you. And we were in constant competition. And uh, I saw him as a rival, as a foe. I had this best friend. One day I looked up and found that my best friend was the friend of my foe. Now that'll bless you, you know. You imagine how God must feel as He looks down upon His people to know that we have become friends with His foe. And the next step is hostility toward God. Verses, verse 4b, a striving toward God. And then an enemy of God. Can you see the progression? An enemy of God. Now listen, folks. This passage of Scripture is not written to the alien, to the, to the foreigner of the common, to the commonwealth, alien to grace. He's writing these words to God's people, to Christian people. And he says that the progression of the war that has gone on inside of you and among you has made you an enemy of God. Enemy of God. And the call of this passage is, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, it's time, let's make up our mind whose side we're on. And if we're on God's side, then God's people together, loving one another in unity. Now look at the synopsis of the solution. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Let me read verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Put down in the margin of your Bible, the Spirit jealously desires us. That's what He's saying. The Spirit jealously desires us. Weymouth translation has it. The Spirit which He has caused to dwell in us yearns jealously over us. And I'm reminded of Ephesians 4, 3, where it says, Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What Ephesians 4, 3 is saying is this, Preserve the unity that the Spirit produces. 
Now when you put all that together and when you see that James is saying that the Spirit jealously yearns over you and and, and Ephesians 4.3 says preserve the, the unity that the Spirit produces, you find the solution is in the Spirit of the living God. For where the Spirit is, where the Spirit is, there is peace. Where the Spirit is, there is unity. The solution is this. Say to the Holy Spirit, take control of my life. Say to the Holy Spirit, take control of this situation and yield to the Holy Spirit in it. That's the power. Here's the principle, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but give grace, gives grace to the humble. You might get what you want by fighting for it, but you'll miss grace on top of grace if you do. Now what he's saying is this. He gives grace to be humble, and he gives grace to abdicate and capitulate. He gives grace to say, I'm sorry. He gives grace to deal with these issues of conflict. He'll even give you the grace to love another person. As a matter of fact, the whole principle of grace is this, that God gives us, God has the ability to love the unlovely, and He gives that to us, to faith. So that the solution to conflict, both internal conflict and and conflict in relationships is the yielding of one's life to the Holy Spirit and the invitation of the Holy Spirit to to come and deal with that and to accept the grace that God gives to be the person we need to be in the situation. And I've been in churches where people have had conflict with one another and I've seen God's grace sustain that one who would come to say to another person hey I'm sorry that I've wronged you I'm sorry I offended you I'm sorry that we have this conflict I've seen God's grace in that and I've seen the grace of God in the church as a result of that now some practical advice the last words of verse 6 And the first words of verse 10 are the same. So that in between, bracketed, by verses 7 and 8, he deals with what it means to humble yourself. So let me look at that with you. The last words of verse 6, but gives grace to, to the humble. And verse 10, humble yourselves. And in between, he describes what it means to humble yourself. Here it is. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. That's what it means to humble yourself. Number one, it means to submit yourself to God. Practical advice in dealing with conflict in in relationships. Submit yourself to God. It says to me that most of the time our conflicts occur because we're not submitted to God. 
The word is a military term. It means to get into proper rank so that when a buck private acts like a general, he's going to have some problems. Get in rank and understand that God is the sovereign authority of your life. And God's will is the way to live. God's word is the, is the, is the, is the authority. Get in rank. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Now the devil desires for us the devil's desire for us is to assert ourselves. Now understand that when he talks about resisting the devil, he's not talking about, uh, you know, I never had any problem after I chewed one big chew of tobacco and took a big dip of snuff and got so sick. I thought I was going to die and I was afraid I couldn't. I never had any problem with, with, with dipping and chewing after that. So what he's talking about is not resisting the devils, you know, and, and, and not smoking and chewing. In the context He's saying, resist the devil's way of dealing with one another, which is by assertion and aggression. Resist that, he said. Resist the devil's desire for you to assert your authority and your rights. Resist that. So that the other side of that is that you submit to one another. That's the whole theme of the New Testament. Are you with me? You understanding how, how rich this is? Resist the devil's desire for you to assert yourself, and he will flee from you. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. You can get as close to God as you want to get to God. Now, I've noticed that if you draw near, if you draw close to the devil, he draws closer to you. You resist him, and he flees. You resist God, and he leaves. Now understand when I'm saying he leaves, I'm not talking about the fact that he, he departs. I'm talking about he withdraws his conscious presence. Jesus never stays where he's not wanted. He went into the, to the country of Gadara, into that little village, and those folks said, Lord, we, don't, we can't handle you here. Would you get out of here? Depart. He got right out. He left immediately. He never stays where he's not wanted. Now, he said, I'll be with you always even to the end of the earth. I'm not suggesting that he departs. I'm saying that he withdraws his conscious presence if we don't want him here. You draw near to God, and he draws near to you. You desire that he leave you alone. He leave you alone. He never stay where he's not wanted. Now, how do you draw near to the Lord? I was doing some study not long ago for my Sunday school class, and it was the story of Abraham, and such a marvelous, marvelous passage. And here's God and Abraham, and God is talking in soliloquy, and he's talking about destruct, the destruction of Sodom. He's just talking to himself. It's a soliloquy. He's telling, he's telling himself. You read that in the 18th chapter of, of Genesis. He's saying to himself, am I going to tell Abraham that I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom? I guess I better because we're friends. That's a tittle paraphrase. I mean, Abraham was close enough to hear God talking to himself. And the next verse says that Abraham drew near to God to pray. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a Bible scholar to interpret what that means. It means that there are some things necessary in preparation to prayer. There is that which is preparatory to prayer. That's the drawing near to God. 
He was close enough to hear God talking to himself, and yet when he got ready to talk to God, he drew near. There was that preparatory to prayer. Now what is it? Well, he says, clean your hands and purify your heart. What is drawing near to God? It is clean hands and a pure heart. It's a reference both to deeds and thoughts. It means that if you're going to draw near to God, there are some things perhaps in your life that must go, that must be left behind. Clean hands. A.W. Tozier likes to talk about nearness is likeness. Nearness is likeness. And he uses this illustration. He said, I could be sitting in the den with my dog in my lap and my wife in the kitchen 20 feet away. My wife would be nearer to me 20 feet away than my dog in my lap because my dog is not like me. We have nothing in common. Nearness is likeness. The more you, listen to me carefully, the more you become like the God who made you, the nearer you get to the God who made you. Purify your hands. What is there in your life that, that you could not bring to God? And purify your hearts. That is, what thoughts are you having? And remember in this context, as he deals with relationships, when you come to God, how about the thoughts that you have about your brother? About your brother. And then he says, mourn and weep. Let your joy be turned to weeping. You can tell a lot about a guy by what makes him cry. I think the best illustration of that was the day I, I've told this before, but it's the best I've got, so I'll tell it again. Next week, I may tell it again if I can't find a better one. I was going down Elm Street, and I saw this car run that stop sign right there on 3rd and Elm and plow right into the side, this car coming down 3rd, and uh, just literally smashed the pudding out of both of them. So I jumped out. I was right there. I mean, far from here to Jerry. I was, I was, I jumped out and I went over there to see if the lady was okay in the car. And she said, oh, yes. She said, she said, you will not believe this, but said, I'm my husband. He's up here in this apartment, Les Chateau Apartments right up here on 3rd. said, would you, he's, he'll be standing out in the, he'll be standing out in the yard up there. He said, he's waiting on me. He said, I'm driving, he said, I'm driving this new car home from the automobile agency. And she's, brand new car. He said, Go, would you go tell my husband so he can come down here? And, I mean, she had been drove it from the car lot over here on Main to 3rd and Elm and wrecked it. <laughs> and, and so I went up there and I saw this guy kind of pacing around and, and I said, are you so-and-so? He said, yes. And I said, well, your wife has just had a wreck in that car, that new car, down on 3rd and Elm. And before I could even say, you know, that she was okay, he said, well, how? He said, what about my car? You know, and, he, and he, he didn't even ask about his wife. Did he want to know? And he just started, oh, he said, he said, I just bought that car. Said, you know, and he never one time asked, you know, how's my wife? Is she hurt? Is she going to be okay? And, I, and finally I said, well, your wife's all right. He didn't even, he didn't even notice. 
he was just he was just weeping over this car. She can tell a lot about what makes a man cry, about what a man's like, by what makes him cry. Have we lost the ability to grieve over sin? It seems to me that we laugh about the things we ought to cry about, and we cry about the things that ought to be a joke. And the night I sat in, in Texas Stadium and I watched that old drunk climb out of the bleachers and run out on the field, just stoned out of his mind. So drunk, he didn't know where he was. It was at the sixth inning and they were, about the fifth inning and they were scraping the field. So it was just like, before people could even, it was just like everybody just kind of froze in time. That drunk ran out and he, he touched first base, and he started the second, staggering and weaving, and everybody just kind of stopped, frozen in time. And when he got to second, he went into it head first, just plowed the ground up. And he got up and staggered a little bit and headed to third. By that time, the fans uh, were cheering him, you know. And when he got to third, he fell into third base. And by that time, the security people had gotten out on the field and were taking him off, carrying him off to the booze of the crowd that they were taking him off. And I looked around at the people by me, and everybody was cracking up in laughter. They thought it was the funniest thing they had ever seen. And in my heart of hearts, I wanted to weep at the sight of it. It seems to me like we laugh about the things that ought to make us weep. And those things in our life that God despises, we think are so hilarious. And so he said, Humble yourself under the hand of God. He will exalt you. He will exalt you. And that person who has that burning desire to be number one, He will exalt you if you humble yourself to Him. And that word exalt means to give you a place that's the best place Let's pray together. Father, grant to us now an awareness of where we are in relationship to one another and to Thee. And in the painful exposure of that reality, help us to find grace on top of grace, to be loving and submissive, gentle, and kind. Help us to have the Spirit of Christ that thinks more of the needs of others than his own needs, who, though being in the form of God, thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but humbled himself, became a servant, 
taking the likeness of man, humbling himself to the point of death, yea, even the death of the cross. We hear him say, let this mind be in you. Father, I pray that you'll help us now to draw near to thee by emptying our hands and our thoughts, being willing to turn away from that which is impure and undefiled, and defile to that which is pure and undefiled. For I pray in Jesus' name, for his sake, in the spirit of prayer, would you look here? What a plea this morning of invitation. I was deeply touched by uh, Brother Scales' plea to be saved. Morgan and I talked about it. He probably thought this will be the last time I'll ever preach in First Baptist Church, so I'm going to call people to Jesus. And he did. There's some of you tonight who may have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. I want to communicate the heart that that's concerned about your lost condition. I want a burden for you. If you've never been saved, I want you to be saved tonight. Like that little child saying to her, that preacher this morning, I was saved. I want you to be able to say that. Come giving your heart to Christ. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Maybe there is a conflict that exists. You just want to make that matter personal repentance in your own heart right now or maybe with a brother while we stand to sing we invite your response